Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is a place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. All right, welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. This is Rabbi Cosgrove, and Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast is an opportunity to engage in dialogue with members of the Park Avenue Synagogue community, but also to engage in conversations of relevance and urgency and interest to the Park Avenue Synagogue family. And today we have a guest who is both a member of Park Avenue Synagogue, but whose purview or and whose purview uh, extends into subject matter, which is of deep importance, not just to our community, but to American journalism and journalism as a whole. Deborah Farrick is an award-winning journalist who spent nearly 20 years at CNN traveling the United States, covering crime, terrorism, cyber attacks, and the human condition. As a former CNN national correspondent and anchor, Farrick is known for her uncompromising reporting on the Boston Marathon bombing, Pulse nightclub shooting, Sandy Hook Elementary School Massacre, ISIS terror attacks, cyber threats, child sex trafficking, the heroin epidemic, and many, many other major stories. Winner of more than a dozen awards and nominated for multiple Emmys, Farrick's work is rooted in an unwavering commitment to investigate thoroughly and report accurately. Having retired from CNN in 2017, Farrick travels globally and is sought out as a speaker moderator and subject expert. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Well, it's great to have you here. I have to tell you, um, I know it's been a few years since you've been on CNN, but um, it was always somewhat, uh, you know, when, when I would see you on television and then I would see you in shul on a, on, for services and I would say, oh, I just saw her on television and here she is in synagogue. So, it's great to have you on podcast, and it's always great to see you, as I do um, so frequently in synagogue. Uh, so welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, Deborah. you have um, had this uh, storied career in journalism. You've seen a transformation of um, the industry, and that there was this moment of time where perhaps uh, people got their news by way of NBC, ABC, or CBS, you'd have your nightly news. And now it seems that we live in a totally different universe um, of how information is accessed. And, and, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about this journey of American or, or world journalism. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head, and that is that you know, in the past, we really had a limited number of outlets, um, ABC, NBC, uh, we had newspapers and most, peop most people read newspapers. That's what everybody did. 
you know, now if you're seen carrying a newspaper around, you're definitely dated and put into a certain category. But I think part of it is when I think about journalism today, it's almost like an all-you-can-eat buffet in Las Vegas, right? There is such a smorgasbord of options. Uh, you can have newspapers, magazines, you can have cable news, multiple cable news stations, you can have Facebook, social media, and everything that is considered media has been lumped together under this big umbrella of journalism. And you know, when I the way I was trained and the way I learned from some of the best people in the business, you know, journalism was about integrity. Journalism was about fact finding to report something as close to the truth as possible, right? It doesn't mean that sometimes mistakes aren't made, but that is the objective is in all cases to try to avoid any sort of mistakes. In breaking news, news is developing. And so there were times where I would say, oh, you know, we are just learning that this has changed and now authorities are telling us this. And so you know, it's that I think what drives most journalism, most journalism, most journalists is this search for the truth. And and that has really changed so that um, people think Facebook is journalism. People think Instagram is journalism. People think the latest cable news station is journalism and it's not. And so you really have to know what you're reading, where it's coming from whether there's a bias or not, um, and and frankly, who's paying for it? Because all of that is a factor now in terms of what we're consuming. And it takes a lot of energy these days to be informed and informed really um, with things that that are in indeed fact or the closest right. thing you can get to a fact. But let me, let me just sort of peel away at the onion for a second because isn't there... Or one could make the argument, I suppose, that there's always bias, right? Even in, in the heyday of, I don't know who it is, Brokaw, Rather, and Jennings, right? You have three individuals or institutions, companies deciding what is newsworthy, what focus we are. Now, we're going to get to the underbelly of this in a moment, but just this idea that there was this sort of halcyon days where truth existed and just the news was reported. I mean, isn't it a little more complicated than that in the sense that, you know, at a certain point, you know, Cronkite decided he wanted to tell a certain story a certain way, and that reflected a certain biases of a white straight male living at a certain time? Um, or, I mean, does did truth ever exist? Um, so one might argue the truth is relative. Right. Your, your truth is what you know. And so you're 100% a series right. of choices, a series of choices for sure. Uh, I think, you know, with Walter Cronkite, he was telling the story of American soldiers, for example, fighting in Vietnam. Right. We didn't really hear what was going on in Vietnam and how they perceived that same war. And so you're right. Truth is who is reporting what at a given period of time. And so um, they're fundamentally is a bias. And, and I think now, though, in this day and age, those biases have never been more apparent. Um, and, you know, we are left with a situation whereby most people gravitate to news that confirms what they feel, what their values are, what they think. And, and that in and of itself creates a very polarized, uh, divisive kind of community 
here in America. We're all watching it. We're all witnessing it. Um, but but no, I, I, I do agree with you on that um, in terms of, you know, what what is really true and, and what is not true. But I think with mainstream media, it is the closest thing we're going to get to something that is more real, I think. Um, but I have always said, you can watch a live news event on television. And then as an exercise, turn on MSNBC, Fox, CNN, and you will see differences in the exact same news event that everybody watched live. And so to me, the, the, the journalism today and, and your ability to inform yourself really requires and demands going back to listen to original um, interviews, going back, listening to original you know, news events or, or watching uh, original news events, uh, because that is when you as an individual get to form your opinion based on what you know um, or interpret the information based on whatever knowledge base you have. Right. Is, is it fair to say on, on these, the, the, these mainstream or CNN, MSNBC, uh, Fox, there's a blurring of lines between what is actually news and what is actually commentary. And I don't, I don't have it at my fingertips, but sometimes I'm listening to the same channel and then 20 minutes later, it, it's, we, we veered off from a news story to, um, you know, talking heads, um, waxing their own views on said news story. And, and you don't any you don't know any longer. A hundred percent. Opinion analysis commentary has blurred the lines, um, especially with 24 hour cable news stations where you've got to fill 24 hours of news. Now, one would think, you know, you could you could do that pretty easily, but you can't. And so now, you know, when when I was reporting, it was the journalist who went out, reported got their, spoke to their sources, got information, came back, put it together in a way that was coherent. All of my stories had to be vetted through the legal department and standards and practices. That was the standard by which, you know, we all agreed to. Then there was a shift uh, right around the time that I left where you had a lot more commentators that were coming on. You had people who had a connection, for example, let's say with some kind of you know law enforcement event, who would come in and wax about what was going to help. What were the next steps in the investigation? But the news itself, what happened, um, that almost became something which everybody sort of circles around and starts commenting on. You know, um, it's almost like, oh, what do you think happened? Well, based on what I know, and so that is also a um, a, a distillation in a way of. Um, Maybe that's not the right word, but you're right. This is why I say when you see something, when you see a live news event, right, um, whether it's somebody giving a speech or or summing up what what's happened in, in an attack or something like that, watch it. And then, frankly, after that, pretty much you can turn the television off because all you have is people sort of speculating, um, hypothesizing, and trying to provide commentary, which is often very repetitive um, and non-informative in many ways. Do you, ha do you have any, uh, I don't know if you're at liberty to talk about this, yeah. but um, in any of your coverage and your own personal uh, experience, whether it's a Boston Marathon or Sandy Hook or otherwise where there was a story 
and you wanted it told a certain way and your your editors are were telling it the other way is there any incident that you can recall that you felt either your integrity or the integrity of the story was sort of on the chopping block I I was very lucky because I would say that for 99% of my career that never happened but there was an event a time that I remember where somebody had been hired from the network and we had gotten word there was a there was a, a news article that somebody had written and I can't remember which publication it originally was in and it was that al qaeda was training in camps all across North America. And I just remembered who who reported it originally. And I spent probably almost nine hours working the phones and trying to confirm that. And I was calling sources in Europe, sources in Canada, sources everywhere just to confirm. And every person I spoke to, bar none, and I must have spoken probably to close to like, I would say maybe four dozen people that day, said it's not true. It, it's we there's no evidence. If it is true, there's no evidence to support that it's going on. Like we cannot confirm this story to you. And when I went to to this person who had come from the network, I said, it's not true. We can't report this. And I was told at that moment, well, it's okay. Don't worry about it. We have an analyst who will go on and say it. And I went to my my supervisor, who's a brilliant man, and I said, this is wrong. And he said, type up what you have, turn it into a news story. We'll get it, you know, we'll we'll make sure that it's that it's that it's out there. Um, but I I couldn't stop that train wreck, which was that that an analyst went on air and and reported that with no verification whatsoever. So, but it only happened once. And I think I was very lucky in that way. Um, you know, that may happen more these days. I don't know, but but to me it only happened once. Got it. Um, and th- and now we, you know, look and uh, and I've read statistics somewhere that most uh, people, certainly young people, don't get their news from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, whatever it might be, the local paper. But they're getting it from Facebook. They're getting it from Twitter, which has no guardrails as far as you know the veracity of any particular story. There's no. Uh, claim to journalistic integrity. So we're we're in a. Uh, it, it's not just the quantity of information, but it's the lack of uh, these various journalistic yeah, uh, standards that, independent of biases, uh, just their their claims to the truth. I mean, we're we're in a different age right now. Is that is that fair? I think that's very, very fair. And I heard something uh, recently which sort of sums it up. And I wrote it down because I wanted to share it. It said, human beings are far better at generating content than they are writing rules to police that content. It's impossible to write one set of rules. They will always be changing. Um, and that was actually a reporter for The Economist. And um, and I think that that is what the problem is. It, it's at a place like CNN or The Washington Post or The New York Times or Bloomberg Magazine, you know, respected, respected media outlets, um, the work is vetted. It goes through a series of checks before it gets printed, all right? Um, and so that doesn't happen with Facebook. And things are 
are sent to people on Facebook. And then all of a sudden people begin to think that that's the truth. And there's a very dangerous, um, people are going down the rabbit hole. It becomes an echo chamber and people think that because they're seeing it, because it appears to be legitimate, then it must be legitimate. And that's the problem. There's so much content out there that is that is really not true, that is not, by all, for all intents and purposes, legitimate in that nobody's checked it, nobody's verified it, nobody provides any meaningful facts about it, um, and people get swept up in the hysteria. Or it could be sort of that secondhand source is reporting the unfiltered, for, you know, if someone posts on Twitter, I saw Rabbi Cosgrove eating lobster bisque soup, and then a major news outlet says there are unverified reports that Rabbi Cosgrove was eating lobster bisque soup. And then all of a sudden now it's out there in the, you know, well, did you hear? I don't know. It's true. It's unverified, but it could be true. I mean, it's a silly example, but it's, it's a way this sort of, uh, you know, we don't know. And that's an excellent point. And what I see happening more and more these days is that an allegation posed as a question becomes part of the narrative and becomes its own truth. So, for example, somebody says, oh, you know, I saw Rabbi Cosgrove eating lobster bisque. Um, and then, OK, I go to you. I say, did you eat lobster bisque? You say, no, I didn't eat lobster bisque. I go to the restaurant. I ask, you know, your family. And I said, did anybody ever see him eating lobster bisque? And everybody says no. And then it's like, no. He was not eating lobster bisque or there's no evidence to show that he was eating lobster bisque. But because it's out there, then it becomes, oh, well, you know, I heard. And that's when it becomes dangerous because rumor is presented as evidence based fact when it's not true. And that's what the danger is, because you can never escape that rumor because it is repeated often enough that obviously there's got to be some merit is the way people think. Well, I'd like to categorically deny um, <laughs> any claims that I was eating lobster bisque soup of all of the various foods, by the way, that maybe one day I say to myself, you know, if the laws of kashrut were suspended, um, I actually have no desire to eat lobster right. bisque soup. There you go. So, so there you go. Um, other things, perhaps, but um, not lobster bisque. Um, and, and what about, I mean, we got to touch on it because uh, whenever we drop this conversation, um, it's certainly not going to be resolved. Um, uh, Twitter and um, the, the, the question of, um, you know, the, well, there's so many angles to this question about um, the, the toxicity and the vitriol that, that's there, the guardrails um, that um, could or should be uh put in place um, to keep hate speech out um, of, of Twitter. Um, I'm, you know, what was Twitter itself a game changer uh, for journalism has, and, and what about the news of the last few months as, as what the future holds for Twitter? So, so when Twitter was first created, it became a very valuable news source for people. And what I mean by that is that 
people were able to program their own news feeds, right? So, so for example, you know, just you, you could program you could program a newspaper that you really liked, and you'd get updates. You could program um, a, a noted historian that you liked. You know, a couple that I like now. One is Duty to Warn, which is an association of mental health experts that they comment on what's going on. Or you know, Right Wing Watch. You know, that's another one. And and those would just line up in your feed, and you could you could click and sort of follow those. And so that was the upside of Twitter. But Twitter now is, and and I'm not saying anything that I don't think anybody else has not said. I think it is in a chaotic, desperate freefall um, because it is almost unusable now. Uh, things that, you know, my, my trusted newsfeed is now filled with nonsense and garbage and hate speech. And, and it's, it gives everybody equal access, but it is very, very dangerous. And, you know, in fact, the people that are using it as, as, you know, just um, a megaphone, it is, it is getting louder and louder and louder and sane voices are being drowned out and it's attracting, it's attracting a whole new genre of people. And, you know, I don't want to be incendiary, but you look at what happened during World War II or with the rise of Hitler, and he distributed radios to people in Germany so that he could control the message. And that's kind of what we're seeing now, which is on all social, on many social media outlets, um, including Facebook, including Twitter, is this megaphone for people who just want to spread hate and like attracts like. And so you start getting volume and numbers and things that should be unacceptable in 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 all worlds are now finding a home and that's why we are in a very very precarious state right now so if you had a billion dollars or 44 billion dollars or otherwise and you were trying to address this crisis of um content of uh, the the fire hose of speed, you know, would you where would you invest it? Would it would it be about teaching young people to be more discriminating in their uh, read of, of of news? Is it in advocacy regarding uh, guardrails um, around media sources? Um, where where do you think the right intervention is in this world where there's too much information? We don't know what's right. We don't know what to read. And we're all in our own sort of silos of where we get our information. Is there a fix? Is there a fix? Um, I, I think hate speech, hate speech should never be tolerated in a civil society, period, full stop. It should not appear on forums. Um, there is, there is you know, hate speech is hate speech. It should never be tolerated, period. I think young people have to be taught and they're much more sophisticated, I think, um, in so many ways, because when they look at things that are coming over on their Instagram or on TikTok or whatever they're looking at, they're, they're, they're more aware, but it doesn't mean that they're not vulnerable. And so I do think, um, you know, putting warning labels in some ways um, on young kids. I think also it takes a lot of self-control and self-regulation, um, you know, for, for, for people um, 
to question everything, question everything, be critical of what you're looking at, what you're reading, question who's it coming from, where is it coming from, is it something that sounds true? And if so, go and do research on it. Um, go look deeper into where it's coming from. But the guardrails, it is so big right now. And it really is such a mess. And it, you know, I go back to the analogy of, you know, this all you can eat buffet, like, where do you start? And do you just pick at little things? Do you eat what you know is good for you? Do you eat what you know is bad for you? Do you? Um, so where are the guardrails? If I had that much money, I'd probably just take it all. <laughs> but I think that would uh, I'd be accused of limiting free speech. And as a journalist, I firmly believe in it. But you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. And I think we are people are yelling fire every day in ways that are just not acceptable. And I, so I think, honestly, it's about society and how we view civility and how we live together in a world that is kind and civil and doesn't tolerate this. There's no room for it. And I cannot believe, you know, that 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 less than 80 years after, you know, World War II, we, we are having this conversation and it 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 is so upsetting that this conversation is allowed to happen because we should have learned the first time and we haven't. And so I don't know what the guardrails are. It will take society as a whole coming together and saying, you know, if you don't want to be part of this, leave. Where those people go, I don't know. But so. All right, Deborah. we have time for one last question. It's going to be a personal question that I like to ask people who are members of the community uh, to, to weigh in on, but you are a beloved, um, regular member of the Park Avenue Synagogue family. So where, where does uh, synagogue life, what, what draws you into synagogue life, Deborah? Well, when you walk into Park Avenue Synagogue, um, why do you walk in? So... Park Avenue Synagogue has always been about community for me. My my children, you know, went to Hebrew school there. Um, they made friends. I made friends. You know, I've done trips with the synagogue and those bonds have deepened. And so when I walk in on a Friday night, there's community. It's a sense of place. It's a sense of belonging. It's a sense of, I guess, just this this love that is in the community and with the clergy and the congregants. And it is, it, it is really a family and they're there in good times and they're there in unhappy times and sad times. And so you, you know, it's, it's not something you just show up to because you're having a good day. You show up when you need to be there and want to be there. So it's, um, it's a really special place for me. Deborah, you are a treasured member of our community. It is always good to see you. Um, please, God, always at good times. And thank you so much for joining us. And um, thank you for being part of PAS Podcasts. A pleasure. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah, <laughs> Bekodishot.